It's Friday, May 4th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. The last few weeks have been busy in Harrisburg as lawmakers rushed to complete unfinished business before adjourning ahead of the May 15th primary elections. Recent legislative and regulatory action has addressed everything from clean energy financing and solar credits to permitting and regulatory reforms to the possible rollback of key environmental protections around conventional oil and gas operations. So it would mean Pennsylvania would probably be the only state in recent history that would walk back environmental protection standards applied to the oil and gas industry. On this episode, we'll get details and analysis on all of those measures from three of our in-house experts. That's coming up. But first, April 20th and 21st, volunteers planted thousands of trees on former mining sites in two state forests. Peck organized the events as we do every year, and Peck staffers were there to help out. Some of us also brought family along. My daughters, Greta and Annalise, joined me at the Pinchot State Forest planting site, and they took the opportunity to put together this audio postcard from the tree planting. Here it is. Hello, this is Greta Rollerson. And I am here reporting on the 2018 Earth Day event. We planted 3,000 trees with about 70 volunteers. It's very cold here with a very high wind chill. I'm here with Annalise Rollerson. How are you? Good. (laughs) All right, so uh, where are we, Annie? Well, um, we're tree planting. I don't really know where we are. Pincho Park. Pincho Park. Yeah, State Forest, yeah. How did you guys do today? I feel like we did really good, and we made some new friends, and I really liked it. Oh, that's nice. So, what does it make you feel when you know you, you've done something good for the Earth? It makes me feel happy and proud of myself. Oh, why are you proud of yourself? Because I planted, like, a hundred trees with my group. When you were planting the trees, how did you feel? Uh, I felt proud of myself when I planted one, and when I was digging, I felt happy. Was it hard? Kind of. Kind of. Um, can you explain, like, how, how did you do it? Uh, well, you got this long stick. It's like a shovel. And you would, like, press it into the ground. You would, like, pull it up high and then press it way into the ground. And me and my sister like to jump on it. And it was really fun. Yeah. And then well, you would get the plant and then put it in and cover it up with dirt. That's very good for the earth. So would you come back next year? Yes. Hi, can I interview you? You sure can. So what's your name? My name is Lori. Hi, Lori. So uh, how, how does it make you feel when you plant trees? It feels great knowing that I am reforesting the Pinchot State Forest and protecting and conserving the mountain for our future generations. Is it easier for you to plant trees or harder? It's not so bad once they teach you how it's done. And as long as you don't hit any rocks, you'll be fine. Is this your first time? It is not. I've been here before. I come here every Earth for Earth Day weekend. That's really cool. Anything else you want to say? Just keep Pennsylvania beautiful and celebrate Earth Day no matter what you decide to do because one thing is all you need to do to make it count. Thank you. Thank you. Well, here you have it, folks. The tree planting is really awesome, and it makes you feel really proud of yourself. Thanks for coming, and come next year. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. 
You can find photos and videos from our 2018 Earth Day celebration at Pinchot and Weiser State Forests on the Peck Facebook page. And you can learn more about our reforestation program by visiting peckpa.org, P-E-C-P-A dot org. On to our legislative round-robin segment for this week's episode, following up on some of the news from the state capitol over the last few weeks. We start with David Hess. He's former DEP secretary and is an important part of our policy team in Harrisburg. Dave, welcome back. Nice to hear from you again. Yeah, nice to, to be with you today. I think last time we spoke, we had talked a lot about some measures that were moving as part of last year's budget process that would have some pretty significant and uh, some pretty, uh, frankly, terrible effects on the way uh, DEP and other state agencies make decisions about permitting. It seems that some of those ideas are in play once again. Could you bring us up to speed on what's being discussed and what the the status is? Sure, I'd I'd be glad to. This time of year, uh, right before the, the primary election on May 15th, the folks that run the House and the Senate want to check as many political boxes as they can. So sometimes some crazy things are acted on and, and get through. But in this case, uh, I think there's some real threats here. Uh, the House this week, for example, passed a five-bill package promoted by conservative Republicans that purports to enact some reforms on how we adopt regulations and how we do permitting. You know, among the five bills is, you know, a quote reform that would require the General Assembly to adopt a resolution before any final regulation that uh, is of economic significance is uh, put on the books. And uh, the unique thing about this is that the General Assembly could simply kill a regulation by doing nothing which isn't exactly cricket in the, in my book, and it's probably unconstitutional, but there it is. So they would not only have effectively veto power, but they would have to affirmatively approve any decision that was made. That's right. That's right. And if, if they didn't, uh, the legislation says the regulation automatically dies. So again, by doing nothing, they could kill regulation. Another bill would... Uh, require agencies like DEP to set up third-party permit reviews uh, systems in other words, for all its permits, whether it's a hazardous waste permit or a nuclear power plant permit um, and everything in between. So some third party that uh, the legislation doesn't spell out uh, even basic things like conflict of interest requirements or, or requirements that they be knowledgeable in a certain area. Uh, but it requires them to, to agencies to set up third-party permit reviews. Um, other agencies, are, and, and I mean all agencies would be required to do this, but in particular the target has been DEP. Another bill would uh, cap the number of regulations, like that somehow is important, and would require any agency to get rid of two regulations for any new regulation they want to put up on the books. This is similar to what the Trump administration has uh, enacted at, at the federal level. I mean, obviously, there's no limit on things like legislators introducing legislation, uh, and agencies only adopt regulations that they need based on state and federal law. So, that whole approach to just looking at the number of regulations in in the eyes of many groups uh, just uh, 
just doesn't make sense. So these are the kinds of things we got moving at, at this point in, in time. Whether they will ultimately land on the governor's desk, who knows. But I, I will warn folks that with respect to that bill that would kill a regulation uh, if the General Assembly do, does nothing, the Senate already passed its version. So we could see this or other pieces end up in uh, some sort of budget agreement later in June, uh, which would be really bad news. What are the signals right now from the governor's office as to how he would respond to any of these measures passing the legislature? Well, on, on some of them, he's, he said, obviously, he has, he has real problems with them. I mean, groups like, of course, Pennsylvania Environmental Council, Environmental Defense Fund, have been in there with their opinions of the bill, which is very simple. I mean, these kinds of bills... Do nothing to open up and make more transparent and more effective, you know, a regulatory process or a permitting process. And what they really do is put politics of head of science and in some cases law. So, you know, obviously uh, there's a long, long way to go on some of these bills, but you know the threat is there that they might show up in some sort of budget resolution. So it's something we have to keep a close watch on. I'm curious about the third-party review proposal. I think last time, maybe the previous version of, of this idea that we had talked about, there was at least some minimum level of qualification you had to be certified in something, not necessarily the thing you were being called upon to make a decision on, but like you could be a landscape architect or something and make decisions about you know oil and gas operations. I mean, has that very rather minimal standard been removed? Are we really talking about just anybody off the street could be could be designated as a third party reviewer for a permit application? The people that wrote these bills haven't done anything to address any of the issues that people have brought up, including the minimal conflict of interest requirements about a consultant that might be designated to review permits taking money from a, an applicant. I mean, none of that has been addressed. And, and personally, I wouldn't want a land surveyor, which is one of the people that could, you know, be termed as, quote, qualified under this and similar legislation to review a hazardous waste permit. I, I just don't see how that computes at all. So it, it there are a lot of basic flaws in these bills that no one has addressed. And it's a real puzzle to me why they can't seem to get this stuff right. So you're saying there's a real rush to get these things in, or there was before the the primary election that's coming up. Presumably part of the reason for that is they want to check those political boxes, as you said, please certain supporters. Is the corollary of that that they put themselves in some political risk potentially as it gets closer to the general election? What's the What's the political calculation here? Well, I, I think the political calculation is very simple. Those people that support the, the members that are behind these bills will continue to support them. And if if I could sort of get political for a moment, I mean, as long as our legislative districts are drawn to favor one party over another, uh, you're, you're really not going to get very much different. Uh, they really don't run a risk of running afoul of uh, their entire district in a general election in in November because the districts are drawn to favor one party or another. 
So, and that's the unfortunate thing. Obviously, a lot of people have been talking about the congressional districts, but you know, in the state house and state senate districts, it's the same thing. So that's that's why I raised the caution about uh, these issues are not done. They will be on the table uh, during budget season and after. So uh, it's something we all need to watch out for. All right, we'll check in with you again when the next shoe drops. Mr. Hess, uh, former DEP secretary with Creasy Associates, thanks again for your time. Okay, thank you. John Wallace here is PAC Senior Vice President for Legal and Government Affairs and is back in Pittsburgh after a long week in Harrisburg keeping tabs on what's happening with the legislation the PAC is following, in particular House Bill 2154. Uh, Pennsylvania Environmental Council earlier this week, jointly with Environmental Defense Fund, sent a letter to lawmakers expressing a pretty firm opposition to this legislation from PAC. John's here to tell us why. Hi, John. Hi. So um, House Bill 2154, uh, what it does is fundamentally rewrite environmental protection standards that are applied to a certain segment of the oil and gas industry. In 2012, Pennsylvania enacted a law known as Act 13 that had a whole upgrade of Pennsylvania's oil and gas law, which was last revisited in 1984. What's really driving this bill is there's a very small segment of the oil and gas industry Uh, that do not do horizontal hydraulic fracturing operations. Um, They're often called the conventional industry, uh, but the problem is under Pennsylvania law, it's very inartfully defined as to what constitutes uh, conventional, what constitutes what's often called unconventional, which is what most people associate with hydraulic fracturing. The problem with this legislation is that it follows that poorly drafted definition to separate the two and really unwinds some very significant protections, things like chemical disclosure, things like making sure that uh, replacement water supplies meet the Safe Drinking Water Act, standards that would apply to on-site storage of chemicals. Uh, any number of things this bill would take away for the conventional industry. So PAC, along with EDF, has opposed the legislation. So talking about how conventional oil and gas production is defined, I think one of the ways it, it tends to break down, at least at the the discourse level is these the conventional operators tend to be smaller uh, businesses and the the big guys are doing the unconventional development uh, what what role does that dynamic play in you know in this political debate well there are small scale operators who are finding it very challenged to compete uh, economically with the larger operators so there is a very good uh, argument there that those that small subset of operators maybe should see a different set of standards but the problem is the way this law is defined it's much more of a broad swipe at the protections themselves and goes too far. So when we say this would take us back to 1984 for at least one segment of the industry, what does that mean you know, in practical terms? What would potentially the impacts be? So it would mean Pennsylvania would probably be the only state in recent history that would walk back environmental protection standards applied to the oil and gas industry. And the things that are taken out by this legislation, taken out from the law, are things that the industry is already doing in other oil and gas states. And frankly, a lot of these are practices that are already been identified by API and others as standard practices for the industry. We saw some movement on the bill earlier this week, and for a minute there it looked like we might have a, a vote before the full House. Sounds like now maybe that might not happen just yet. What's the current disposition of this? How far has it made it? And what do you expect to happen next? So it received a very tight split vote in the committee uh, when it was voted out on Monday. 
Uh, and because of a number of absences in the House, as well as sort of an internal polling of vote count that we understand, they decided not to bring it for a full floor vote at this time. But we do anticipate that they'll bring it back at the end of May. What needs to happen between now and then from our standpoint? What are we hoping to get across to the lawmakers that will be the key votes on this? Well, I think the message we're trying to get across to the lawmakers is, is that there is uh, probably an appropriate way to deal with this issue. Unfortunately, this legislation just goes too far. One thing that seems to keep coming up more and more lately is uh, the environmental rights uh, amendment to the state constitution and that big ruling that we had from the Supreme Court last summer, which has been the basis for, I think, already several lawsuits uh, about legislation kind of like this one. Do you anticipate that being some recourse in the future? Do you think there could be lawsuits? Yeah, I could, I could imagine that if this legislation were to pass, although Governor Wolf has signaled that he's going to veto the legislation. But if for some reason it passes and they're able to override a veto, then yes, I expect it to be challenged. All right, John, thanks again. Got it. May 1st saw the passage in the Pennsylvania State Senate of Senate Bill 234, establishing a Pennsylvania property assessed clean energy or PACE program for the state. This is a piece of legislation that fits into the category of bills that that we're very closely interested in at PEC insofar as it informs our work on decarbonization. The person who is heading up that initiative on our behalf is Alyssa Berger, our senior energy and climate policy advisor, who joins us now to explain a bit more about what's in the bill and why it's so important. Hi, Alyssa. Hello. So first of all, what is what is PACE? How does it work? Why, why do we care? Sure. So commercial PACE, as you mentioned, stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy. Um, so there can be both commercial and residential PACE. And really what this means is it provides upfront capital for an interested business owner or resident to use that money specifically for energy efficiency or renewable energy projects. And then basically you're, you're paying it back, that kind of loan, if you will, from your savings. Um, and so in residential, that's known as like a lien on your home and commercial pay slight, structured slightly differently. But in order, because again, this is a somewhat complex financial product, you need enabling legislation. Um, so that's what Pennsylvania is attempting to do is to pass enabling um, commercial pace legislation. A number of other states already have commercial pace on the books. So, you know, if folks are, are really interested, I strongly recommend checking out, um, I think it's pacenow.org, but they have a really great map that shows which states allow residential pace and commercial pace. Um, And you can learn a little bit more about kind of the commercial pace 101, um, you know, background structure there. Because again, it's it's a financial um, mechanism. So more on the difference between commercial and residential, I mean, what are the important differences? And is there a reason why Pennsylvania is going after the commercial piece of it first is residential pace also on the agenda later on you think uh it could be so um the reason that they're split out um is that residential pace tends to be a little bit trickier there tends to be a little more pushback because um the residential pace loan will take precedence over the mortgage in the lien order and so um some of the housing agencies um like fannie mae freddie mac um as residential pace was first gaining steam, really had some concerns about that order of operations in that they always wanted the mortgage to be first if, you know, a home went into default or that kind of a thing. So residential pace got caught, um, gummed up, if you will, in some legal challenges um, stemming from really um, your the order in which you pay money back, 
your mortgage and so forth, and then with some of the housing agencies. So a lot of folks then switch their sort of attention to, well, if not residential PACE, let's at least get enabling commercial PACE um, legislation so that businesses, particularly small businesses, medium-sized businesses, can access capital. Uh, this is going a little bit into the nerdy energy financing weeds, but you know, a municipality, a university, a school district, or a hospital they often um, will enter into what's known as an energy service performance contract, which means they'll work with an ESCO, which is an energy service company, to basically evaluate capital projects that are also considered energy efficiency investments or upgrades, bundle those projects. The ESCO provides them with a large sum of financing, usually more than a million dollars, and then they'll pay that back again through their energy savings. Um, But for a smaller business who's never going to hit kind of that $1 million budget mark, something like commercial pace is really attractive because it allows them to do more basic projects like, let's say, a lighting um, upgrade or retrofit where that could save them a ton of money. You know, they're then investing in light bulbs that are going to last them a lot longer. And just overall, it's better for that bottom line of both savings and um, kind of an energy use standpoint. So... Based on what we've seen in other states that have some version of a PACE program, what might we expect the uh, the impacts to be a year out, two years out, or whatever you know time frame you want to talk about? What's going to come of this, ideally? Sure. So you know, I think um, the long and short is it's just it's really exciting for Pennsylvania. So um, you know, whenever you have a report or kind of an assessment looking at climate resiliency strategies or, for example, you know, PEC's decarbonization report, it's always going to talk about, you know, we have to do all of these things. But the question then is, how are we going to pay for them? Um, So having financing mechanisms in place so that your residents, your businesses, your universities have access to capital to actually invest in, and that's what it is. It's an investment in different energy choices means that you're really supporting the policy that you're recommending. Um, And so I think what will happen is, you know, this means that whether it's state agencies or nonprofits or the private sector being the energy service companies, more market actors can go out to the small businesses, the medium-sized businesses and say like, you know, hey, like Sam's Grocery Store, um, you guys have some older HVAC equipment, some older lights, you have a flat roof, maybe we'll do solar. We could do all these things for you guys. You'll save, you know, maybe $10,000 a year and you don't have to take out a loan. We're going to give you the money and you can pay it back with your energy savings. So that could be a, a, a game changer in some ways. Um, there's different ways to structure a commercial pace program once there's enabling legislation. So, you know, Florida's program looks a little different from Connecticut's, which looks a little different from California. Um, so, you know, it'll then be a question of once we're allowed to do it, how we'll stand up a program. Will it be a revolving loan fund? You know, that kind of a thing. But I think what this means is um, more people will have easier access to capital to invest in energy efficiency and renewables. And that's money makes, you know, money is important when we're talking about this stuff. Obviously, organizations like PEC want to see more uh, energy efficiency upgrades being made, we hope. Um, What about property owners? Like what, what is the appetite for something like this? Are others pushing for pace or is it, or is it something that uh, environmental groups and energy efficiency advocates are primarily behind? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of something that everyone can get behind, and I say that really sp- specifically to commercial base. Again, 
the residential PACE programs have really been um, gummed up with the, this lean situation where they want the mortgage to be the priority the housing agencies do. So if you go to pacenation.us and you look at the commercial PACE map versus the residential PACE map, residential PACE now is only allowed in Missouri, Florida, and California. So that's just three states. But if you go to the commercial PACE map, you're going to see, and I'm just doing a quick scan, probably 15 states. Everyone from Oregon to Texas to Arkansas, Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia, New York, you know, that's at quick glance. So um, commercial PACE is a little bit easier right now to, to set up and structure. Um, but again, because it's one of, um, it's a financing mechanism and because it can help bring together both public and private sector participants, you have kind of everyone championing this. So for example, um, as House, uh, sorry, Senate Bill 234 has moved through committee and then the full Senate, you know, it unanimously passed um, the Commerce Committee and then it had a strong bipartisan vote of 42-8 in the full Senate. So, you know, I think we can take from that that a lot of folks are supportive because um, legislators are hearing from businesses and um, owners, employees, the energy service companies, hey, this works for all of us. Please make sure it happens. And it sounds like there's every reason to think that this will go pretty smoothly in the House as well. Is that fair? I think so. Yes, that is what we're hearing. There shouldn't, there's no reason to believe that there's going to be a challenge in the House. So hopefully we're going to see this pass pretty soon. And, you know, um, we've now been, Pennsylvania has been looking at um, commercial pace for well over five, six, seven years. So the fact that we're close to getting across the finish line and making this a reality, I think, is is a big deal and a big win for um, decarbonization, clean tech, clean energy for the state. And then shifting gears a little bit, so to speak, uh, another big development in the last week that we've heard about uh, has to do with solar energy credits and the market in Pennsylvania for those credits. Uh, first of all, tell me about the legislation, that issue here, and then the decision that, that was handed down by the uh, Public Utility Commission last week. Sure. So we'll keep this um, somewhat high level, but it's it's a really big deal. And again, another big win for clean energy and decarbonization in Pennsylvania. Um, so a solar renewable energy credit, um, referred to as an SREC, is sort of um, a, a financing Bitcoin-ish thing that gets tacked on to a solar project. It's the way that developers and those that are financing them can kind of make money. So SREC prices matter. Um, and uh, Pennsylvania, you know, had a strong solar market back when ARA funding the renewable, um, I'm sorry, the um, Reinvestment Act dollars at the federal level. And then um, when Governor Rundell was in Harrisburg, we had state incentives as well. What happened, though, was is we had open borders. And what that means is outside projects could provide their SRECs um, to meet our alternative energy portfolio standard renewables requirement. Um, so Pennsylvania sort of saw a flood of SRECs, which neoclassical economics 101 meant that the prices went down. And when the prices go down, it becomes less attractive to build solar projects. So this has been an issue for a number of years, uh, like 10 years. And so um, when Act 40 passed last year, um, that was a big deal because finally I think everyone realized, hey, we need to make some changes if we want to sort of improve the market conditions for solar in Pennsylvania. So 
When that passed, it then went to the Public Utilities Commission for kind of, if you will, interpretation prior to implementation. So in December of 2017, what we saw um, is known as a tentative implementing order. It basically gives us a sense of, okay, this is what the commissioners are thinking about. It's not final, and it provides an opportunity for people to provide feedback. But what happened was, is when the TIO came out, three commissioners basically said, you know, we're interpreting the legislation this way. And then Vice Chairman Place and Commissioner Brown um, actually offered up an alternative interpretation. So this isn't all that common. They offered up an alternative interpretation and said, you know, we believe the spirit of the legislation meant to close the borders, to improve kind of market conditions, so we don't have this like flooding of outside SRECs. And so um, really from the end of December until two weeks ago, Nobody really knew how this was going to play out. So um, for all of you energy nerds out there, uh, folks were really on the edge of their seats um, to, to, to know like what's going to happen. And then at the last public PUC meeting, um, kind of much to everyone's surprise, all five commissioners came out in favor of the alternative interpretation, which meant that all five commissioners agreed you know, this is good for Pennsylvania. A strong solar market's good for Pennsylvania. And to have a strong solar market, we're going to close off the borders and we're going to change the way we um, allow and count SRECs to meet things like our alternative energy portfolio standard. So um, again, this is a significant change, a great development for solar in Pennsylvania. And um, while it won't necessarily change the SREC prices overnight, it is going to bolster them and we are going to see them go up, I think, moving forward. The other thing that this signals to the national market, because you have to keep in mind, the solar market, you know, internationally as well as domestically has become very sophisticated. Technology um, is improving rapidly as it relates to solar, solar thermal, concentrating solar panels. And so what this also does is I think that this says to all of the large solar developers as well as the smaller ones and investors, venture capitalists, that Pennsylvania is taking investments in clean energy seriously. And so I think this is a proud moment for Pennsylvania to be able to sort of say to the rest of the country, hey, um, you know, we know that solar is important for our economy, that solar jobs um, producing cleaner energy so we have healthier air and so forth for our next generation um and and we understand how the market works so we've made these changes we're aligning policy and market signals um and now come build solar in the state so um it's a it's a big deal um and you know we'll continue to follow it as kind of these small changes get made within the program um and then when the program's fully kind of stood up we can certainly report back on it so the upshot is that solar manufacturers and companies are going to have much stronger incentives to do business in Pennsylvania. We don't know exactly how soon we'll start seeing the effects of that, but is it is it accurate to say that this is sort of the last major um, you know legislative regulatory policy hurdle to be cleared? Yeah, I think um, Act 40 is specific to the, the SREC and border concept, kind of that in-state versus out-of-state SREC concept. Um, this change is significant. I think what will be additionally significant is that you're starting to see states pass kind of updated large energy packages. So Illinois has done this recently, and then New Jersey just three weeks ago passed two pieces of legislation all about kind of energy, clean energy, both relating to um, some of their nuclear assets as well as 
their um, renewable portfolio standard. And so, you know, I think also next up will be Pennsylvania's renewable portfolio standard kind of expires, if you will. I'm using air quotes, expires in 2021, which in the policy world isn't all that far away. And so, you know, right now I believe the state utilities are required to we have to meet 8% of generation with renewable energy. I hope that's right. 8%. Um, New Jersey's legislation just passed, and that's moving New Jersey's RPS target to 40%. So I would say that, you know, if Pennsylvania can now increase our RPS target, um, I think with commercial pace, solar, a number of other things, what we're doing is we're enabling the right tools and policies to then go after something as ambitious as a um, you know, a 25%, 30% RPS target related to producing energy with clean, clean energy. Alyssa Berger, our in-house uh, energy policy expert, decarbonization czar, thanks for your time. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Insights from former DEP Secretary David Hess, PEC Senior Vice President for Legal and Government Affairs John Walliser, and PEC Senior Energy and Climate Advisor Alyssa Berger. You can follow the progress of these pieces of legislation and many other bills and measures on the PEC Bill Tracker at the PEC website, PECPA.org. You'll find it under the Policy tab. There you'll also find a comprehensive listing of important upcoming meeting dates and other proceedings from state government that you'll want to be on top of. It's a great resource, and you'll find it at, again, PECPA.org in the Policy section. Another information resource you might want to take advantage of is our monthly In Case You Missed It newsletter. You can sign up to receive monthly email updates on what we're working on here at PEC and things that are coming up in the near future. Visit PECPA.org and uh, find the email sign-up link at the bottom of the page. Lots more on the website. You'll find past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies as well as videos, articles, blog posts, and information about our programs in watersheds, trails and recreation, energy and climate, policy program, and more all over the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One more time, it's PECPA.org. That is the website. We're on Facebook, too, of course, and on Twitter. Follow us at PECPA. Join us again in two weeks for another episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.